Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. IBM Cloud offers millions of different server configurations with 20 terabytes of bandwidth cost-free. Get the compute power you need and deploy on demand, but at prices set for smart cost management. Visit ibm.biz slash servers to customize your server today. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Hello and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm Greg Nix filling in for Josh Nelson, who is in New Orleans. I'm hoping he's sitting at the Café du Monde right now having beignets. I can't verify that for a fact, but uh, wherever he is, uh, I am here in his stead, and we'll be talking about the White Sox spring training. Um, joining me to discuss spring training, we're going to position the, or we're going to preview the shortstop and third base positions, and of course, we'll answer your questions in PO Sox. Here is the co-host of the podcast and managing editor of SoxMachine.com, Jim Margulis. Jim, how has spring training been treating you so far? It's been not bad. Watchable. Exciting. Watch today's game, or I should say Sunday's game, since people will be listening on a Monday and watch the White Sox put up eight runs randomly when they're down 6 nothing and win, which I imagine is the kind of excitement that we're in store for. And high fly balls get lost easily for doubles that turn innings around and everything like that. So it's uh, it's been entertaining and interesting enough to where... Uh, there are some big names that aren't playing right now, but the their absence has not yet been felt. 
Yeah, I've only seen, I would say, about four innings of spring training games so far. But what I have seen is Luis Robert double, Luis Robert triple, Yermin Mercedes home run, Andrew Vaughn home run. So I've been enjoying it very much, and I'm hoping that that is the kind of thing that's in store for us, not just this season, but like over the next seven years, eight years. Uh, I, I could get used to that, I guess. Yeah, no, I think uh, Robert, yeah, I wrote a post about it Sunday morning, just basically recapping his week because everything he does is captured either by webcast videos or MLB TV or cell phone videos from the beat writers or fans in the stand, bloggers. So basically every motion is tracked, which is great because, uh, you know, especially when these games haven't been streamed and, and credit the White Sox for doing their webcast because so many teams don't even offer audio. It's uh, I would not want to be covering... Uh, you know, trying to write about those teams when you have to write blind for two weeks or rely on just whatever footage people can provide from elsewhere. But it, it, it's every action has been tracked and we've seen a lot of good action. Like you said, the, the double, the triple, the homer, the uh, you know, great ranging play he made to make a catch behind Eloy and left and then uh, uh, running the base as well, too. Although he's you know, he was testing himself a little bit because he almost got picked off second and then got picked off third over rounding it on a uh, double play, uh, kind of doing the MLB, the show, you know, the base running I kind of use in video games where I just take off in every single batted ball and uh, run until they, they they never notice that I score from second on grounders all the time. Uh, he's trying to do the same thing I picked off, but you know, kind of doing a heat check a little bit, but it's nice to see how unencumbered he is, you know, by the contract, you, you might hear the uh, either the rationale or the narrative if a guy is struggling after signing a deal that he feels pressure to uh, prove that he's worth this contract right now that seems like the furthest thing from his mind and he's just playing the way his talent allows him to play. Yeah, I and I think too, just that we're not having discussions about service time. I didn't even realize how refreshing that would be. Like, yeah. Thinking about sort of Robert having this same performance and if the discussion around that is like, oh, he's too good for them to option, but they're going to do it anyway and they're going to have to come up with these excuses. Like right now we can just sort of enjoy the the purity and the excitement of his performance and even it, it's nice to get it now. I mean, you hope that he gets off to a hot start, you know, in April, obviously, but the fact that at least right now we can just watch the White Sox and be excited about him is something mm -hmm. that I am not taking for granted. Yeah, it's baseball's entertainment and we are entertained. Uh, at some point, you, like you mentioned, that you have to worry about April and cold weather and major league pitching and games that count. But uh, you can set that aside and just enjoy the pure physical spectacle that's going on and him doing things that you don't see many players be able to do. And I'm thinking about, you know, last spring too with Eloy and, uh, you know, he had the thing going where he didn't hit that well, especially like the first couple of weeks. And they thought he was pressing and trying too hard to prove that he's worth the spot. And even though it's clear that everybody is worth a spot and the White Sox optioned him down, then he signed the extension. They brought him back up and, and suddenly he was right on schedule to break camp with the team, even though his spring wasn't that good. And it was just all feeling kind of like sitting in on a prolonged negotiation session that you couldn't do anything about and it wasn't all that fun. Yeah, that, that was like, that felt like maybe 80% business, 20% baseball. This feels like 100% baseball, which is really, uh, yeah, like you mentioned, very refreshing and just how it really should be. 
Yeah, I mean, in a larger sense, right? Anything 100% baseball with the White Sox over the last like three or four years has not been a good thing. It's not been fun. The the it's mostly been like, oh, you know, 20% of baseball is exciting, and then 80% is the future and and trades and prospects and stuff. And so to see it all sort of coalescing, I mean, I do feel like this spring training um, is one in which the excitement can be felt in a way where there's there's not quite expectations yet beyond like be a 500 team. So anything good that they do is kind of just it just feels good. It just feels good as a fan. And, and as we all know, as White Sox fans, very rarely do we get to feel good with no sort of uh, caveats holding us down. So um, speaking of good, let's let's talk about just a little bit more generally spring training. Some of, So the White Sox are five and three thus far in the Cactus League, which we all know, you know, record is not super predictive in the Cactus League and even stats are not super predictive. But this is the first baseball that we've had in months. These are the first stats that we can analyze. So let's talk about some of the stats. So Luis Robert, as we mentioned, is off to a very hot start. Four for his first 10 with a double, a triple, a home run, a stolen base, a walk, and three strikeouts. Um, another high point, mean Mercedes, is five for 12 with two home runs, one walk, and only one strikeout in his push for the 26th man roster spot, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the show. Um, Andrew Vaughn, four for 11 with a home run, and very impressively, three walks to only one strikeout in his first and easily the most advanced pitching he's ever seen in his career. Uh, Nicky Delmonico, Zach Collins, and Luis Gonzalez always, all have an OPS over 1,000, which is fun for a variety of reasons for those three guys. And uh, I would say Dylan Cease has been the high point of the pitching staff. He threw two scoreless innings in his debut, three strikeouts and no walks. And if we all remember back to last year, Dylan Cease did not have very many outings in which the first two innings of his start featured uh, no runs and no walks. So that's been very encouraging. On the other side, um, the bad side of things, uh, not necessarily anything to panic about. However, Jose Abreu and Yoan Mankata are off to very slow starts with a 417 OPS and a 432 OPS, respectively. Um, two of the three second base candidates for opening day have been struggling. Danny Mendick with a 485 OPS and Nick Madrigal with a very ugly 333 OPS. Uh, not what we were hoping from for from him as he tries to take that job. Uh, Mike Rodolfo has seven strikeouts in nine plate appearances, which is maybe not surprising based on his Arizona League numbers and on his AA numbers last year, but still you'd hope that uh, he could make more contact than that, especially against largely minor league pitchers that he's facing. And the other sort of uh, cloud, I guess you could call it, is that Dylan Cease is the only member of the projected opening day starting rotation to appear in a game. Um, although Dallas Keuchel, Reynaldo Lopez, and then Cease again are, are scheduled Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Um, but still, you know, we, we would have I personally, at least, would have loved to see Dallas Keuchel by now. Um, of course, Lucas Gilito is rehabbing from an injury, but I'm not exactly sure why Lopez hasn't been out there. So uh, I I guess, Jim, I'm curious. Let's uh, pretend that we're hot take artists here and mm -hmm. make some overreactions. What has been most encouraging to you from the first week plus of spring training games? 
Well, uh, I like what I've seen you know, starting on the pitching side. I'll, I'll go in reverse order. One is that uh, Cody Hoyer has looked really good, really live, uh, fastball. James Fegan had it 98-99. Uh, I think that was sitting velocity or at least you know very narrow range for his fastball and, and good heavy fastball, good sinking action. Uh, had a really threw a really nice slider to get a strikeout. Uh, I think he struck out two uh, on Sunday. He's got five strikeouts over three innings, only one hit and one walk. The hit was a homer, but still, uh, you know, so far I like what I've seen coming out of his hand. Uh, the one, I guess, uh, if you're looking for like a dark horse or somebody coming off the roster, and usually there's like one, uh, you know, non-roster invitee, I guess Hoyer counts, but when it comes to like, uh, spring training out of organization invitees. Uh, Ad, Ad Alberto Mejia is a uh, you know throwing from the left side. If Jace Fry is out with a with a back uh, injury, he hasn't pitched yet. Uh, if, if they need a second lefty, and and you know Caleb Frere did not uh, impress last year and kind of left that third spot open, there might be a room for somebody like Mejia. You know, if he's throwing like he's throwing and. We've seen guys like Evan Marshall last year who just refused to let anybody on base and uh, refused to let runs. And just after a while, you just can't deny it. And sure enough, Marshall had a nice season. So you kind of have to keep an eye out for these dark horses. And Mejia, he's, he's had some major league success and he's left-handed and looks like he does. Uh, he's got some movement on his fastball and, and, and has gotten some uh, ugly swings and some jam action. So, uh, you know, it's, he's, he's caught my eye early on the first week kind of uh, taking these innings that, as you mentioned, like Lopez and, and Keuchel and, uh, uh, you know, the Geos haven't been able to occupy. On the on the hitting side, I think you mentioned the big ones, just the 26th man candidates, at least the bat first ones like Delmonico and, and uh, Mercedes. The fun guys are, are looking fun right now. And I think that's uh, obviously the, uh, you know, when they have to hit, they have to hit. And uh, those guys are hitting right now. Uh, Zach Collins has been... Very Zach Collins. I think he's drawn mostly walks in his plate appearances. Hasn't really been able to score anything up yet. He's got a homer. He's got five walks. He's only hit as a homer. He's got five walks. So that's uh, very Zach Collins-like. And yeah, I guess Luis Gonzalez is the one guy who's jumping out to me in terms of quality of plate appearances and that whole Birmingham logjam. Uh, I think he was the one I was most disappointed by because like Basabe, he had a worse season, but he also had the hand injury. Gonzalez did not have any kind of physical problem to point to and you know the at-bats weren't terrible the walk rate wasn't terrible the strikeouts weren't terrible he just he didn't do much with contact and I was hoping to see a little bit more because he can play center field better than Blake Rutherford and can face lefties better than Rutherford can so he's really the best of you know the better of those two and maybe Basabe since he's been hurt he's like the best outfielder of that bunch to to crack uh I think into Charlotte and then into Chicago as you know a fourth outfielder slash platoon center field option and just you know the the velocity the exit velocity the the contact didn't go anywhere so to see him have these at bats early and to be competitive and you know already have an extra base hit under his belt and three walks out of the strikeout I'm, I'm very encouraged by that yeah Gonzalez is is interesting to me because I think it was Keith Law in his recent prospect rankings sort of shouted out Gonzalez's glove as as a plus in center field even not necessarily oh he can stick in center field but that he actually could be an asset there so if he's a guy who can sort of play defense in center field get on base a little bit you know have a little bit of power suddenly he becomes really the the sort of perfect fourth outfielder for the White Sox assuming that Luis Robert 
Aloy Jimenez and either Nomar Mazzara or some free agent acquisition or trade acquisition in the future have, have sort of those positions locked up. I could see Gonzalez being kind of, you know, something that we've always wanted during this rebuild as just somebody who pops and can bring something to the major league ball club that it doesn't already have. Um, Similarly, I'm very excited to see Mercedes hitting well because I feel like he should make a good case for being on the opening day roster. And I don't know. I mean, he's hit two absolute bombs so far. I mean, like it doesn't look like there's anybody outside of, you know, Abreu and Jimenez on the White Sox roster who has that kind of raw power. So especially since he's not striking out yet, if he can have that kind of power, if he can make that case for power without the strikeouts off the bench, that seems to me to give him a leg up over somebody like Collins or Delmonico, where Collins obviously has the the strikeout problem and Delmonico doesn't strike out necessarily, but hasn't really proven that he has the in-game power to make up for his liabilities elsewhere in the majors. Mm -hmm. So I definitely have my eye on Mercedes and I'm kind of hoping he keeps that up. And at the very least... I feel like to him, out of everybody sort of on the 40-man roster, a good spring training is paramount because even if he can't break camp with the club, he's going to need as many positive impressions as he can for Rick Renteria and for Frank Menachino and for Rick Hahn to take him seriously because he doesn't have the pedigree that the other guys have. Um, On the other side of things, I guess I... You know, I mentioned a couple of sort of poor performances at the plate and obviously the fact that many of the pitchers that we want to see have not yet gone yet. Is there anything else that strikes you as particularly worrisome from the first uh, eight games of the White Sox Cactus League? Well, aside from Adolfo, as you mentioned, because basically when it comes to spring performances, I look at ability to control the strike zone, especially since you're not seeing a whole lot of great breaking stuff early, at least typically you don't, you see mostly, you know, fastballs and changeups and maybe some spinning stuff, but it's really about uh, pitchers trying to establish themselves and seeing Adolfo strike out as much as he has just, it seems like he's further away than, uh, well, probably he hoped. I think, uh, yeah, after you mentioned the Arizona fall league and just how much time he's missed that I expect him to be kind of a project for at least a month or two in the regular season before he gets all his, uh, uh, old, or I guess picks up where he left off at the end of uh, Winston-Salem before Birmingham kind of pushed him beyond his breaking point and he had to uh, go back on the injured list. I think on the pitching side, or I should say on the position player side, I think I'm more disappointed by, or worried, I guess, about uh, like Edwin Encarnacion being out and, and, and Grandal being out. I think that's really the bigger thing right now is just availability injuries and vagueness of injuries that kind of uh, worries me a little bit. I think Giolito, he's had the, when you look at injuries, Giolito's injury has been, he's had the most progress from it, most regular appearances as he ramps up from it. So I think, uh, you know, the chest muscle strain and he also had the flu, I think that set him back a little bit. Doesn't seem to be as concerning, but when Encarnacion has a back problem and hasn't been, you know, play, he hasn't played yet and hasn't really, you know, nobody set a firm timetable for him. That worries me a little bit. Grandal with his calf injury, expressing some mild frustration about it. That's a little bit iffy. So I think when it comes to uh, negative performances, I think it's too soon, especially when you look at veterans, to really be worried about, uh, you know, exactly how they're producing. I'm just more worried about guys who haven't been able to get in games yet. 
Yeah, Encarnacion, I think, is the one that is particularly worrisome for me as well, just because we've seen this sort of script before, right, of, of back injuries. I mean, Todd Frazier dealt with back injuries. Uh, uh, Jim Tomey, like, chronic back injuries, one of the reasons they, they eventually let him go. And both of those guys were, I mean, Frazier was reasonably productive. Tomey was very productive, but I think that we've, it's easy to see how a back injury can, especially in an older player who relies on their hitting sort of just, yeah, reduce, reduce their value to nothing. And so I think it'll be reassuring to see him if he's able to come back sometime this week and even just get at bats to know like, okay, this really was just soreness or it really was just, you know, he got out of whack in the cages or something like that rather than, oh, this is going to be a chronic issue that's going to have to be maintained all season. Um, I will say, uh, so Yasmani Grandal is scheduled to play in a B game on Wednesday, so it looks like unless he has any setbacks, we should see him uh, in the m- with the main squad at some point this week, um, but that obviously has been disappointing to not see their biggest free agent acquisition and and like i said keichel is scheduled to throw today monday uh for those of you listening to it on the day that the podcast comes out he's scheduled to throw in today's game so hopefully with kind of hopefully as this week goes on some of those concerns will be allayed i would say um yeah i think when it comes to the uh the starting pitching i think Gio gonzalez probably the only one I'm really concerned about just because he's had shoulder issues and had a, a shoulder issue last year kind of reminds me a little bit of another Gonzalez, Miguel Gonzalez, who just managed to dodge uh, a greater reckoning with his shoulder for years before finally succumbing to it. And uh, But it seems like when that problem keeps flaring up, there's only so long you can go without it. And I think the White Sox are trying to get, you know, just hoping to get maybe a half season from him, but I think it's probably important that the half season shows up early on trying to figure out who the extra starters are. I think, you know, Mejia, you know, he's somebody who could maybe, maybe be stretched out to start. He did start games as recently as uh, 2018, but last year worked exclusively out of the bullpen and didn't really show the uh, command to really earn more than like, say, uh, low leverage work for three different teams. So uh, he's got a little bit of uh building up back to do, I think, before he gets back in the rotation. But Detweiler got smoked today, and you, you know, <laughs> there's nobody wanting to see Detweiler. I think of the extra starters right now, I think Bernardo Flores probably looks the best of them all, and you know, maybe that's to be expected. Maybe he did have the inside track uh, compared to other options, and it's nice to see him you know, throwing nice and easy and the fastball back in the low 90s with a good changeup, and he had some uh, nice break in his curveball today, so maybe there's an extra starter there, but... They need one of these guys to at least serve as a compelling, legitimate sixth starter before, say, like Michael Kopech gets back into action and looks like he can step in. Because I think they have to buy at least, I would say, three or four weeks with an extra starter before Kopech can really be considered to be major league material. Yeah, and I'm I'm looking at the schedule right now for the first week or so, and it's a little bit unfortunate because they do have – they open – 
on March 26th against the Royals at home. Then there's an off day, um, which theoretically could buy them, you know, an extra skipping the fifth starter, except for the fact that then they have six games in a row, um, which seems unusual to me for the opening of the season. Am Am I wrong on that? Doesn't it seem like there's usually off days in every opening series? I mean, they have an off day. Yeah later that they have an off day after those six games and then they have an off day the following week but it seems like the schedule does not necessarily line up very easily for them to skip a fifth starter they will need somebody or they will need to go to a bullpen day yeah i'm checking out the schedule right now uh sometimes when it comes to early season you know uh, series there's usually at least one, you know, it, there's usually one off day unless they're playing like a indoor stadium or West Coast where they don't get rain. Uh, in this case, that's not the case. But yeah, it's going to be. I mean, you could uh, roll the I, dice on a rain out probably in one of those games. Yeah, like yep. I would say there's at least a 50 50 chance, but that doesn't seem ideal, especially in a season in which you are theoretically contending to say, <laughs> like, OK, we're going to make the playoffs at the end, but we only have four starting pitchers. Yeah, I, I think with Cleveland, Boston, and then that uh, first full week, uh, there's possibility. But it, it seems, uh, I, I'm, I think if Bernardo Flores can show, you know, I guess be stretched out to five innings plus, if he's like say the Gio Gonzalez alternate while Gonzalez is getting ramped up, say if he needs a little bit of extended spring training or at least one outing in the minors as a rehab stint. He strikes me as at least a good use of a start. I think if they have to dip into the Detweilers of the world, then that'll feel like how much progress has really been made. Yeah, unfortunately, I see a Detweiler start a lot more easily than I see a Flores start. It just, I mean, not that Flores is is the kind of prospect that the team would be thinking of concerning service time about, but just the way that the roster has been managed over the last two or three years, it seems too aggressive for them to promote Flores even if they know it's just with a couple starts in mind I mean that seems like yeah a Ken Will there's a 40-man roster spot though and Flores has got the 40-man spot so well, they'll have to use an option to have him start the and, season and Delweiler's not on the 40-man right now right okay well yeah then maybe you know especially if they have to sneak a guy like Mejia onto the roster Tehran Guerrero or something like that well we shall see. Uh, hopefully this is all moot. Gio Gonzalez comes out and, and throws a couple games and can be reasonably counted on for four or five innings in the first week of April. And, and we'll look back on this and laugh and <laughs> never see Ross Detweiler in a White Sox uniform again. Um, but <laughs> uh, we, we don't want to count those chickens before they hatch, let's say. Um Moving on to happier topics, this week uh, we will be previewing the shortstop and third base positions for the White Sox after we've we've talked rotation, we've talked bullpen, we've talked first catcher, second, and DH, and now we move on to shortstop and third base. Um, So obviously Tim Anderson and Yoan Makata are both firmly entrenched as the opening day starters, assuming good health. Let's start with Anderson, Jim. Zips is projecting Anderson for a 274 average, 301 on base percentage, 443 slugging percentage, and 1.9 wins above replacement in 146 games. Obviously, Zips sees a step back from Anderson's season last year in which he hit 335 and won the batting title. Um, 
What's interesting to me about that projection is that it's very close to his career batting line, which is 276, 303, 435. So it's almost like Zips couldn't make, couldn't decide what to make of Anderson. So they just kind of like took his, you know, took took his school report and like just changed a little bit of the words of it to make it sound <laughs> like they were having an original idea. Uh, so you you know. Anderson, that's sort of close to what we saw in his abridged rookie season. Then he's been, he was pretty bad for two years at the plate, and then he was obviously very, very good at the plate. So my question for you is, based on that line, would you take the over, would you take the under, or is that a push? Do you think that's just about where he's going to end up? I would take the over. I think there is some regression. Uh, Nice thing about Anderson is that when you look at his offense, you can basically just use batting average to... Uh, sum up what you think of him because it's very his game is very batting average based. I think the power, you know, he runs hot and cold with the power, but that usually levels out to be around uh, the same kind of ISO and everything like that. So it's really just about the quality and frequency of contact. And I think he can. I'm I'm kind of looking at him. I think as like maybe a 290 hitter. I I was surprised by how the league didn't figure him out. I, I thought, okay, if hot first half, he's got the ankle injury, um, which, you know, usually saps something, even if it's, uh, I would imagine like a guy like Anderson, I thought like, if he's going to be good, he has to be like hundred percent. He's not somebody you can be effective at 85. He'll be below average at 85 or maybe even like replacement level. Like Avi Garcia was kind of the same way. Uh, when everything was functioning right for him and, and, you know, he hit over 300 made all-star team. He was, uh, he was making the most out of his physical abilities. They were uh, kind of just taking him where it took him. And then, but as soon as like those talents were sapped in any way, it just knocked him back to ordinary or worse and didn't really contribute. And I thought Anderson would do the same thing when the ankle injury popped up and he went on the injured list. And even though like that, that, uh, yeah, that might've been affecting his stolen base numbers and speed numbers, maybe defensively a little bit, uh, it did not affect him at the plate at all. And he just, you know, maybe he didn't hit for as much power as uh, he showed in the first couple months to where you think, like, okay, you can extrapolate 25, maybe even 30. The power tailed off a little bit, but the contact was there. His ability to beat defenses was there. And that made me encouraged that even if he hits in the worst luck, the the batting average on balls and play isn't as ridiculous as it was last year. Still should be an above average shortstop, especially like on the uh, contract extension he's working on. Uh, you, you should not feel bad about uh, having him in the lineup. I think you only feel bad maybe if he's leading off against right-handed pitchers. But if they're not that desperate to have somebody hitting above uh, Yohan Makata and they want Makata leading off, uh, then I think you you love having him around either lead off against lefties for the time being or like hitting sixth or seventh in, uh, in a lineup that, that's a lot deeper than it used to be. Yeah, I think based on just the few plate appearances that I've seen from Anderson this spring training too. Obviously, this is the eye test. Obviously, it's a very small sample size of the eye test. But it was encouraging to see him basically doing the exact same thing that made him successful last year. Like, it didn't seem like he was drastically trying to change anything. It didn't seem like he was out of rhythm. He was sort of just hammering the ball the other way and sometimes it got caught and sometimes it didn't and you know not swinging and missing nearly as much as he used to over his first couple years of the league in the league and and I think there have been interviews with him where he says that he's not trying to change anything and and I 
it's hard to argue with that, you know, like after the season that he just had, obviously you'd like to see him walk more and, and there's things that he can always be improving at the plate, but it also makes sense to me that if you beat the league with the way that you were playing, make the league prove that they can beat you. Yeah. And I, I think he, you know, it's not completely improvised by the seat of his pants type offense. It, it did seem like his last uh, year with Todd Steverson, also including like the preseason and off season before that it did seem like he developed habits. Uh, he made some kind of comment that as he was coming up uh, through the White Sox system in the first couple of years in the league, it didn't seem like he was either coached or, you know, it was you know, like a, a plate approach or knowledge about hitting or knowledge about how pitchers were approaching him was really instilled in him. And maybe that was partially uh, the white, you know, when you look at how the White Sox farm system has or has not produced hitters, you can kind of believe his, uh, his side of the story that uh, there wasn't really a, a great instruction going on in the minors and, and the talent kind of dictated where or, or how players ended up. I think Gilmer Sanchez, he can say the same thing. He was a great hitter in the minors, then came up to the majors and just looked uh, uh, overwhelmed until, you know, uh, two or three years in. I think Anderson kind of went through the same thing. So it seems like, you know, that last year with Todd Steverson, and I think Steverson, uh, you know, go back to Avi Garcia, kind of the same thing where Steverson might have had something for helping channel very aggressive hitters to channel their energies in a more productive way. Maybe, yeah, he can't get them to, uh, you know, take walks and maybe nobody can. And maybe he just uh, turned into the skid a little bit and just, you know, said, OK, just let your freak flag fly and be the best uh, hacker you can be. And I think that works for some people over the course of a whole lineup and over the course of a season where you, you have uh, the lowest walk rate and highest strikeout rate. I think that that, that limit uh, or that approach has uh hits its limitations pretty quickly, but for one or two players in the lineup, it's not bad. And I think Anderson at least has a method behind his madness that's worth exploring. I don't think it's just uh, somebody who's resting on his laurels and saying that uh, it was a complete accident and I'm fine with that. Yeah, the Avi Garcia comparison is interesting too because their production, you know, especially in Avi's all-star season with the White Sox, I think the shape of his production changed a little bit with Tampa last year, but the, but... Anderson and Garcia's productivity is shaped very similarly at the plate, contact heavy, um, you know, not maybe as much raw power as you would like in an ideal world, but it works better for Anderson because he plays at the top of the defensive spectrum and he doesn't have that like massive hulking body that you think like, okay, you're a right fielder and you don't walk a ton like we really need you to hit for power. You, you're not asking the same thing from Anderson necessarily because at least theoretically he can bring value in different ways and so I wonder if maybe yeah Steverson's advice will just serve Anderson better than it did Garcia I think we can hope that at least um so Jim I'm wondering if last season if we can view that sort of not as Anderson's final form but as a bit of a stepping stone I'm wondering how good does Anderson need to be to make the all-star team this year what does his production need to look like well I think part of it's the he has to produce quite a bit in order just to uh overcome just the amount of good shortstops that are in baseball right now the, the position is stacked and you looking at Francisco Lindor Marcus Semien uh Xander Bogarts, you have Jorge Polanco if he's real. You got Carlos Correa if you know, he doesn't have any kind of Astros related hangover. You got Glaber Torres. 
So you get a lot of talent at the position. And uh, yeah, say if Semyon repeats, or yeah, Semyon was an MVP finalist last year. So even if he regressed a little bit, I mean, he's still there and Lindor is Lindor. So it's going to be tough, I think. I think you'd have to probably... Uh, unless he turns into, like, say, a top-flight defensive shortstop to where all of a sudden, he, like, the wins above replacement uh, argument is, is in his favor, then I think, you know, you're looking at probably has to repeat last year's performance, maybe not batting title-wise, but at least, like, you know, batting over 300, uh, slugging near 500, stealing some bases, being dynamic. I think, you know, if it comes to, say, a popularity-based argument, and if he's, like, say, you know, the the extra, whatever the all-star roster is, but how the size of it, but like, say if he's like the last man on doing the final vote ballot, uh, I think the White Sox would love that. I think the league would love that because I think he draws a very uh, wide audience. You know, he draws an audience that's outside the White Sox. I think the league wants him to be good. I think at least people around baseball who don't watch the White Sox and don't really have any kind of fondness for the White Sox naturally, like what Anderson's doing and want him to be good. So I think if he can get on the cusp of it, I think it's in the league's interest and uh, interest of a lot of people to help him get over the hump. Um, but that'll, I think he'll have to produce first to a certain degree. And then you're probably looking at over 300 with, uh, with some pop and with some base running and just having some highlights that uh, follow up on last, capture the spirit of last season, I should say, even if he's not quite as lucky with the, with the contact as he was last year. Yeah, I think, too, Anderson's personality is so polarizing in some circles. I could see that being very helpful to him in an all-star case, but I could also see that sort of, like, inhibiting him from getting maybe media votes from certain sectors or or manager votes from certain sectors, depending on who is actually making the choices for the reserve team. But I think the fact that he is arguably the most visible White Sox in the league should should probably give him a boost if he's having a good season and it would be really fun to see him on the all-star team I think that he would bring a lot to those festivities so let's hope um you mentioned his defense which is obviously going to be a big question as it relates to his overall value we have a question from Steve on Patreon and he's asking I've read a lot about Timmy putting in time on his defense and we all know his backstory about not being a 100% baseball guy from birth to now, so we expect some refinement to come. That being said, when do we panic that his defense is what it is? What are his prospects for it to improve? Well, I, I don't think, you know, say if he's hitting 290, like a little bit of regression, but is ultimately like an above average shortstop, you're fine with him there. I don't think panic really comes into it. And we got a similar question from uh, from Trooper uh, Galactus as well on Patreon, just kind of asking same question in a different way, saying if Anderson you know, has a has another season at short where he struggles the way he did, with especially with errors, uh, and, and is below average on the metrics and you know looks the parts, at least when it comes to just the kind of mistakes he makes, uh, where to go from there. And I just think, you know, he's somebody who... You know, if he goes back to hitting 250 and getting on base at like a 280 clip and the, the defense is poor and he doesn't really like steal bases or generate excitement elsewhere to make up for it, then maybe have that discussion where saying, okay, is he a utility guy now? Uh, and do we have to look for uh, an upgrade elsewhere? But I think, you know, if he's this new offensive player to where he's average to above at the plate, then 
and he's still making plays on the edges of his range that normal shortstops like a Danny Mendick may be more sure-handed and has better footwork and you know makes the routine plays more regularly than Anderson does, but doesn't have the kind of he doesn't cover the kind of ground that Anderson does. Uh, I think you take that. I, I, I'm I'm thinking of previous shortstops the White Sox had like Alexei Ramirez. He drew, drove a lot of people nuts because of his aversion to contact. Uh, falling away from the bag on throws to second and uh, yeah, just kind of annoying people that way. And I remember every year there was a discussion like, is this going to be the year that, that he finally uh, shores up his play around second base bag? And is this year he finally fulfills his potential? And the whole time he was like a three to four win player and just like, that's pretty good on his contract. You know, if you're expecting more, you're just going to be disappointed. Uh, same thing with like Jose Valentin. Jose Valentin was somebody who made a ton of errors when he looked at the kind of production he had from shortstop and that, you know, his, uh, even though the metrics were more primitive then, uh, he was, he, he had, he had pretty good range, pretty good arm and made plays others didn't make. And then they brought in Royce Clayton. They moved him to third and Clayton had nothing with the bat and he was sure handed, but you realize like, oh, you know, like errors are just kind of, uh, it, it's not worth that you know, sweating over that much to where you're moving a superior player off the position just because he makes you uh, maybe uh, face palm a little bit more uh, than the average shortstop. So I wouldn't really incorporate panic into it. I think his offense will dictate his defense or how his defense is tolerated to a certain degree. But I am willing to, you know, given how much he improved at the plate and you know, and at a year or maybe uh, you start thinking a guy is what he is. I, I think the argument can be made that uh, his play can shore up a little bit. Maybe, you know, he's not going to be gold glove quality and maybe he'll still make more errors than you like. But if he can get down to like 20 errors, uh, which is, I think, reasonable, especially given the the kinds of errors he made where it's just footwork wasn't right or try to make plays he shouldn't have. Uh, I think that's the kind of play where you think like, okay, it's not unreasonable to hope for more. Uh, it, it, that's not necessarily the player he is. So I can buy that there's some improvement left. If there isn't, I think you let his bat dictate the argument. You don't move up, you know, you don't move a, an above average shortstop offensively off the position if you have nobody there. Uh, and, and you don't bring in like a Royce Clayton type to move him off just uh, for the sake of moving him. I think you have to let somebody, uh, either, either a free agent development or some kind of farm miracle or, uh, you know, some kind of trade, whatever, what have you for value, I think force that discussion. But if nothing's forcing it, uh, then you just have to hope that the bat is compelling enough to make the defensive frustrations worth it. I just want to give a quick thank you to both you and Ted this weekend in his sporkle uh, for making me think of Royce Clayton more than once in this weekend. That's not what I anticipated. It's not what I would have hoped for. And yet here I am thinking about Royce it's, Clayton. Yeah, it's good to remember him, though, just because that is the the player I go to when thinking of just like moving a guy for the sake of moving him or moving him just because you, you didn't like one thing about a guy, but you didn't recognize all the other stuff he did well. And so I remembered that when going from uh, you know, Valentin, uh, or I should say Clayton to, you know, Juan Uribe emerging. And then once, uh, Alexei established himself, just all the good things Alexei did and for the contract he was on and just, uh, just always took me back to Jose Valentin and Royce Clayton and just trying to, you know, just, just accepting a player's flaws if he's a good player overall and, and trying to combat, I, I think if you combat those flaws, uh, after a while, if a player proves he is what he is and he's valuable enough elsewhere and it's not for a, 
a, a lack of work ethic or anything like that. It's just for whatever reason how a player uh, is <laughs> how a player's brain compels him to move on a field, uh, and, and how his body carries him through based on his physical abilities. I think you just have to accept it uh, and then try to counteract that with uh, complementary players around the diamond. Speaking of complementary players around the diamond, let's talk about segue. an excellent segue. Take that, Josh. That's right. <laughs> I've mastered the segue. Uh, let's talk about Yoan Moncada, uh, his partner on that side of the infield. Zips is projecting Moncada after his breakout season last year for a 274, 341, 483 line uh, worth 3.9 wins above replacement in 141 games, which actually is a very, very good projection. Um, what do you think, Jim? Over, under, push on that projection? Uh, I, I think it can be over. I think just the what, what keeps me from, from saying over isn't the talent. It's more just his tendency to get banged up and miss time or at least try to you know, have injuries to try to gut through where I could see that being something that limits him a little bit and keeps him from like improving on a five win season. But the talent's there. I'm not, I'm not quibbling with the talent. Uh, and to his credits and what he said uh, after the season in the, uh, during the, uh, the winter Sox Fest, et cetera, that he talked about trying to conquer his hamstring injuries and the stuff that keeps him out of the lineup and, or the stuff that keeps him, uh, you know, from, <laughs> I guess, or it keeps him from, uh, you know, playing 150 games in a season. I, I think uh, that's really the biggest thing probably he has to conquer because a lot of the skills look there, the quality of contact was there. And I think uh, we're talking about uh, a switch hitter, um, the, the amount of damage he did on his strikeout rate year over year was impressive, especially how he, well he hit for, as a right-handed uh, hitter against lefties. I did not see that coming. So the fact that he improved way more than I thought in ways that, uh, yeah, I, I thought if he's going to have a breakout season, it was going to be mainly left-handed and the right-handed hitting would still be a liability that he might have to still uh, ward off doubts. But the fact that he came along that quickly, it gives him some room for regression if there is any, but... It also gives him room to hold those gains or at least even gain on them. Yeah, let's talk sort of the most optimistic scenario. I mean, you mentioned uh, health. You mentioned hitting from the right-handed side. I'm wondering if we think Moncada sort of established a new baseline last season, which is a, a very good baseline. It's, it's hard to ask for more than what he did last season. But if he were to take reach another level to become inarguably one of the, say, top 10 players in the major leagues, where do you think that improvement comes from? Is it, is it health? Is it plate discipline? Where in his performance is there still room for improvement? I think there is room for him in his plate discipline. We saw in his rookie year that he was willing to work deep counts, and he did have an eye to do it. Uh, I think he just became maybe a little bit shell-shocked by how many called third strikes he had. Some were his fault. Some were, uh, you know, just, uh, some were just getting beat by pitchers with better command than he'd ever seen before. Others were just bad strike calls or maybe getting victimized by uh, good framing catchers that the White Sox did not have, making it seem even more unjust. Uh, but they did pile up, and it was an abnormal amount of uh, called third strikes to where something had to give, and and he decided what had to give was being more aggressive earlier in the counts and feeling more confident about his 
you know, having multiple chances to put the bat to the ball. I think sometimes he got backed in the corner where all of a sudden it was 0-2, and then he had to try to either, you know, punch his way out of it, and he just uh, was not able to do so, and he didn't get the kind of favor from umpires to uh, help him out either. So it just wasn't, it was very, uh, I think, you know, even beyond his numbers, it probably just felt more frustrating than even his numbers indicated that it was. So he decided to be more aggressive earlier in counts, give him more of a shot, and it worked. But I think, uh, you know, now that he has proven that he can, uh, now that his, uh, his bat-to-ball abilities have improved at the major league level, there is a chance that he might be willing to go deeper into counts again uh, and, and maybe back off a little bit. And also, major league pitchers might respect him a bit more, might become less uh, uh, aggressive with him, and there might be some kind of uh, agreement to where uh, he doesn't do as much damage uh, when it comes to the kind of uh, exit velocity he had and the success he had in balls and play, but he might draw more walks as a result, be more of like an 80 to 90 walk guy. Uh, and that ultimately buoys his numbers and, uh, you know, hopefully with some more games played, does allow him to you know reach that next level to where he is a top 10 player. So the White Sox are very reliant, obviously, on Anderson and Moncada going into the season. Um, there's no reason to assume that either of them would miss extended stretches of time, but I do see a little bit of a hole organizationally behind them. So we have obviously the second base competition that you and Josh spoke about last week between Larry Garcia, Danny Mendick, and Nick Madrigal. Um, presumably Garcia or Mendick will be the main backup on the left side of the infield. Um, or excuse me, the right side of the infield. Which way are we looking at the infield from, Jim? The home plate, left side of the infield? That's what I'm going with. Yeah, I think home plate. I'm thinking like the positional, uh, the diamond overview when Steve Stone is talking about the defensive lineup for a team. Okay, let's talk left side of the infield then. Um, I'm I'm wondering who gets the majority of at-bats if Anderson or Moncada misses time. Garcia and Mendick are projected by Zips for about the same line neither of which is very impressive and there doesn't seem like a lot behind them so what do you think is going to be uh the the most likely scenario for the bench at shortstop and third base i think if larry isn't needed elsewhere either in center field because robert's banged up or like if if like say an out the outfield is healthy left to right and a fourth outfielder really isn't needed then I imagine he'll be freed up for infield duties. And if, say, uh, Madrigal is uh, at second uh, by whatever point we're talking, then, or maybe that's the thing that forces Madrigal to come up and play second because they need somebody on the left side of the infield. But I think given the amount of trust and, and uh, that, that uh, Renteria has in Larry makes me think that he's just going to be the guy that Renteria goes to first uh, and, and, We've talked about this before, and I, I was on uh, ESPN 1000 talking about this and just saying that for all of Garcia's flaws, uh, and you know, it just he plays a lot of positions, isn't an ace at any of them, but is okay at all of them, uh, and he doesn't uh, get on base like a leadoff guy does. He does manage to make the most of his skill set, I think, and, and he scored 93 runs, uh, even getting on base uh I think it was 318 on base percentage. He runs the base wall. He just managed to make the most of the times he got on base, and so did Abreu behind him. Uh, but it just, whatever, however he does it, he makes it work well enough to keep 
getting at bats and games from Renteria. Part of it's necessity, but also I think there is just kind of a faith in uh, that Garcia knows what he's doing and, and, and makes the most of of what he's got with his preparation and everything else. So I think he would be the first line of defense. I think Mendick can prove, like, say if you know, the, this first week of spring is in any indication, and he looks like the guy he was in September last year, I think ideally he would be the first guy to go to for a week or two at a time just to see what he's got and keep Garcia freed up for super sub duties. But as you mentioned, like, I think that's, uh, you know, say if Mendick is overwhelmed, the September was a small sample size and just the league will figure him out. The White Sox are in tough position. I mean, we saw your mean Mercedes play a few games at third. I don't think the White Sox want that. You're looking really at Chesler Cuthbert as like the next man up. And the White Sox have seen Cuthbert do a little bit of damage at the major league level. He's not a bad guy to have at on the left side of the infield at third base in Charlotte as an off-the-roster guy. But uh, if he is the only compelling candidate at third or on the left side of the infield in either Charlotte or Birmingham, that's not great. Yeah, I, I hope we're not in a scenario where we're missing guys like Connor Gillespie, right? Where yeah. it's somebody you, you just want somebody who can put the bat on the ball and is not going to embarrass himself. Um, so we really, really have to hope that Anderson and Moncada stay healthy because if they don't, I don't think that there is anybody coming up from the minors who is going to come close to replicating their production. Uh Although that being said, you know, if if Garcia has to play for a longer stretch, the depth of the lineup is such that it's a lot easier to have Leori Garcia in your lineup every day if he's the ninth best hitter versus the fifth best hitter. So the the depth elsewhere will help make up for any holes. But, yeah, it's not pretty to think about what happens if Moncada goes down most particularly. Um, so... We'll leave you on that happy note, I guess. Uh, Coming up in the show, we're going to take questions from all of you in our favorite segment, P.O. Socks. So stick around. When you rely on the Internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on Internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible x gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Yes, that's right. It's our favorite part of the show, P.O. Socks, where you get to ask your questions to Jim and usually Josh, but this time me, Greg Nix, uh, about the White Sox. And our first question comes from Andrew Siegel. Jim, Andrew is asking, how do you see the Sox using the 26th man? Having a right-handed hitter to pinch hit for Mazzara and an emergency and an emergency catcher points towards Mercedes getting the nod. Does he make more sense than Nicky D? Well, I think I'm going to hold off on this question just because uh, I wrote about this before when assessing the new rules uh, that that 26 man and the disabled list and three men, uh, three batter minimum and such. I reviewed those uh, a couple weeks ago. And yeah, I mentioned that, you know, Mendick seems like a bench lock, but maybe he isn't. You know, Mercedes, Delmonico, uh, Collins, they all have selling points. But I think the conversation will change quite a bit if Edwin Encarnacion isn't ready for opening day. And uh, 
I don't mean to uh, increase panic because right now there's nobody saying that he's not going to be ready for opening day, but just like say in the case that uh, it, it's a you know, possibility that you know, until he plays a game, you're not sure when he's going to be back in the lineup. But if Encarnacion is out, all of a sudden the 26 man, you know, it doesn't really become much of a contest because with Encarnacion, you have an everyday DH and you have a primary first base backup for Jose Abreu. I think if he's out, then all of a sudden the three guys we're talking about, your main Mercedes, uh, Nicky Delmonico, Zach Collins, they all serve that purpose. Uh, Mercedes as the right-handed power slash guy who can stand in at first base. Delmonico as the left-handed bat, uh, or, or Collins, I should say, too, as the left-handed bat with some power who can stand in at first base. I think with uh, Collins, it depends on how much the White Sox want to... Uh, you put him behind the plate four to five days out of the week. Just maximize the reps early. See if there's any kind of ground gained when it comes to receiving and blocking and understand if there's any kind of reliable catcher there. And then you know, make up your mind, say, by mid to late May on whether you just want to ride his bat out you know, for whatever it produces and worry about the catching as like a third catcher or you know, seldom used backup catcher if somebody gets hurt. Uh, but say if the White Sox want to go for it early, then I think you probably go with a mix of Mercedes and Collins for that spot and leave Delmonico to be somebody you leave in reserve because he's off the uh, roster and has already been uh, outrighted once. So you don't really want to do that again if you don't have to. But say if, you know, they, they really do want uh, Collins to uh, get catching work in and Delmonico it looks good, not only in terms of spring numbers, but also the stuff he can track like exit velocity. I think with him, you know, having the shoulder injury, uh, the labrum surgery, and just knowing or, or, or having seen how much that affected him and just how feeble that made his contact. I imagine the White Sox, when looking at track man data, stat man, uh, stat cast data, uh, et cetera, I think they can probably understand how much that affected him, whether he's back, um, you know, beyond just, spring numbers and spray charts, just understanding the kind of damage he's doing when the bat meets the ball. So if he's, you know, looking good performance-wise and also with this underlying data, maybe he is the guy and they get a two-headed DH out of it uh, until Encarnacion comes back. But if, uh, you know, if Encarnacion is out, then all of a sudden, you know, that frees up a spot for, say, Adam Engel to come in to be a fourth outfielder, defensive ace, uh, and you really don't have to worry about, uh, you know, his bench bat at that point. So, uh that's, I think, going to be the uh, the big kind of uh, mystery card. And I think until then, probably I'm keeping an open mind on the 26th man. If Encarnacion comes back and looks fully functional, then I'll probably evaluate that uh, in earnest probably in a couple weeks. Yeah, and I think that that roster spot is going to be fluid until the last week of spring training, if not further. I mean, I, I wouldn't expect the person who wins the 26th man spot, whether it is Mercedes, whether it is Collins, whether it is Delmonico, whether it is Engel, to necessarily remain on the roster all season, um, much less, you know, become some some somebody who is a, a piece moving forward. You know what I mean? That mm -hmm. uh, can be relied upon. So it's an interesting question, but it is not necessarily going to be the same answer on March 30th as it is on April 30th. Um, yeah. Even like March 14th versus March 18th at some point. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. yeah. And they all have options too. So they can all be rotated in and out uh, without any issue. And, and the rule change that makes the, uh, they changed the minimum option period for pitchers to be 15 days instead of 10, but, but position players are still the 10 day option. So uh, that's fine. 
Well, thank you, Andrew, for the question. Our next question comes from As in Rec on Patreon. And just a reminder, you too can support the Socks Machine podcast on website on patreon.com slash Socks Machine. You'll get the chance to ask questions here in P.O. Socks. You will get extra content, extra P.O. Socks questions, extra uh, guest content when there's guests on the podcast and extra blog posts on the website. So definitely check out patreon.com slash Socks Machine and support for as little as $1 a month. Um, as in rec, Jim is asking you, it's May 1st. What in your mind is Carson Fulmer's job on this date? I think he's on the injured list. Ooh, that's interesting. <laughs> that's, that's, I'm going that, off the that, board. That's a tasty uh, take right there. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm, I'm looking at Fulmer's line. Four and two-thirds innings so far, three games, three hits, uh, one homer, three walks, five strikeouts. It's like within the reasonably good uh, range of Carson Fulmer spectrum. Like he seldom has stretches where he looks like he has it all together. Um, there's usually at least one catch, whether it's, uh, you know, too many walks or too many pitches within an outing inefficiency. So right now it's still like, you know, the three walks and four and two thirds innings makes me think like he's not quite a different guy, even though the strikeouts are, are up. But uh, when it comes to Fulmer, this is his last option year and, you would think that the White Sox would, you know, if he's showing anything within uh, reason for keeping him, they'll at least break camp with him on the roster in the bullpen and just see what he looks like in low leverage situations, mop up duty, that kind of thing, just to see if he's gotten over his inability to uh, throw strikes and, and have any kind of facsimile of command when he's uh trying to uh, face major league hitters. But I'm, I'm just you know extending this logic all the way a month into the season. And if you're counting on Fulmer never quite answering the question, I can just picture like, you know, the April 20th coming down with them, some kind of hamstring strain trying to cover first base. And all of a sudden you're, you have to delay answering the question for like another three to six weeks. So that's why I say injured list. I like that. I like that answer. Um, unfortunately, I think for me right now, I'm imagining Carson Fulmer's upside as similar to that of Joe Borchard. And what that by that, I mean that maybe they can trade him for something that will eventually end up being a good piece. Because, yeah, even you mentioned his results so far this spring training, and even those results are so Carson Fulmery just in the inconsistency of them, where in his most recent outing, he struck out three hitters and didn't walk anybody and didn't give up any runs, but the outing before that, he was all over the place. And, and so it's just hard to imagine him. I guess let's put it this way. If he's on the major league roster, it's more for lack of a better options than it is for the fact that he's earned it, which is unfortunate, but, but that is kind of how things are looking at this point, in my opinion. Um, but thank you as in rec for the question um, and for your Patreon support. Our next PO Sox question comes from Nicholas Hevesy, also via Patreon. And he's asking, do you think the Sox will benefit in any way from the Cubs moving to their own network that isn't currently widely available? Well, I think you would have some insight on this being in the Los Angeles market because they're dealing with the same thing over there. Uh, my instinct is to say it can't hurt. Uh, I'll give kind of a surface level answer first because I'll, I'll defer to you a little bit in your personal experience. Uh, but when it comes to, say, I'll say it can't hurt, but if, say, the Cubs are good and the Sox are merely 
okay, like 500-ish, not quite contending uh, for anything like, say, come July, I think the effects of it will be muted. That's my instinct. What say you? Yeah, I... It's a little bit of a tough comparison, I think. I mean, I... I see the similarities, but also the fact that the Dodgers have such a huge both, you know, historical advantage, but also a geographical advantage. Like Anaheim here is, you know, an hour and a half away at at most of the time, uh, depending on traffic. But like there's less overlap between those two fandoms than you would think. So Los Angeles, I think, is a Dodgers town regardless of whether they're on TV or not. I think mostly people are just frustrated if and when they're not on TV. Um, I, I hadn't thought about it in those terms, actually, like comparing it to L.A. So I guess my feeling is that it is similar to yours, that it can't hurt the White Sox and it would be very helpful to the White Sox if the Cubs are bad and the White Sox are good and that is makes the good team more accessible than the bad team, right? That's the best case scenario for the White Sox. But I don't know that mm-hmm. one year or even a few months of a lack of TV ability is going to change anybody's priors, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's, that's kind of my read on it. I think that, you know, as you mentioned, like if the Cubs are disappointing, if like the David Ross experiment does not work well and it's just the Chris Bryant thing just uh, kind of uh, bubbles over and eventually results in movement and just it's uh, <laughs> there's a reason like Joe Madden uh, just kind of uh, was worth him changing locations uh, and, the, and the White Sox are you know maybe not even like contending in August but say at least like an 85 88 one team with excitement maybe some depth issues hold them back but you can see the talent there they have some star power in the city. People like watching them. People like going to games. And it's fun to just in, you know, enjoy watching what the White Sox do. Um, and, and they become like the default viewing for, like say, public places like bars and such that uh, maybe don't have the right packages to get marquee or don't have the right provider. Uh, I could see the Cubs being... You know, and also, I think there is some rickets fatigue a little bit with the media. Uh, you know, I, I see them kind of being a bit of a punchline with the way they wrestled with the aldermen uh, over like real estate deals and just you know, their l- lack of uh, investing in this team when it seems like investing in the Cubs at this point would matter the most and um, just making the most of this window and trying to get back in the postseason. I think if if this blows up, I think there is a lot of the media in Chicago that will want to poke fun at them a little bit and draw, you know, in our in our view from our side favorable contra- contrast between uh, the two teams and and for the first time in a long time say like oh if only the cubs were a little bit more like the white Sox, fun and accessible and the white Sox have a few things going for them one is you know being on the biggest cable provider in the area and also you know being the cheaper place to watch a game the more flexible accommodating place to watch a game both when it comes to, like driving and tailgating and price of uh you know, price of enjoying a game, whether it's eating beforehand, uh, you know, bringing your own food, that kind of stuff. I think the White Sox are well positioned to put a little bit of a dent in it. I don't think it's the case where it'll ever become like a, a you know, hashtag Sox town. But, uh, you know, they can make it more, 
to the point where I think they can threaten the Cubs a little bit, make some inroads, and at least be like, say, a 40-60 split, which I think is probably as good as it gets for a while, unless, like, say, the Cubs really tank and the White Sox have a, a couple deep runs in them. I think that might be enough to tilt the balance a little bit in the tension. But for the time being, I think if you can get to 40-60, just in terms of, you know, maybe not attendance, but sentiment, because uh, the White Sox, or I should say the Cubs pull the tourists, so they always have a good, healthy attendance base. Um, if you can just have it feeling like 40, 60 in terms of general feeling, coverage, uh, sentiment, excitement, merch, that kind of stuff, uh, I think that's where you kind of can feel where the cable did make some kind of a difference and just the accessibility, not having to worry about who's got it uh, on whose TV at whose house or whose restaurant or bar. I think that just making less of a headache does you know, I guess harken back a little bit to the WGN Sports Vision days or sports. Yeah, that was Sports Vision, not Sports Channel. But just uh, to the point where that does, it's not as ubiquitous as WGN was, but it does work in the White Sox favor for once. Yeah, I think, too, what will be interesting for me to watch is just how long the negotiations drag out. Because here in L.A., there was sort of when it first happened, there was a consensus that, oh, this will get worked out very quickly. Um, and it hasn't, you know, it's going on. I think this will be the third year, uh, without the Dodgers available in every home with cable. Um, but the Dodgers, I don't think have been threatened with that. And I think that's why it's drawn on so long is because they realize like people are not going to become angels fans because of those geographical limitations and because the Dodgers have such a built in historical advantage over the angels. And I'm not sure that those things those factors that have given the Dodgers a lot of leverage in that are quite the same for the Cubs. I mean, the Cubs are obviously the more popular team, but both stadiums are in Chicago and the, the White Sox have had sort of semi-recent success and also are a, a very exciting team. And the fact that you mentioned about Ricketts and, and sort of, I don't know, just, I can see Cubs fatigue in a way that, like, I don't see Dodgers fatigue out here. I mean, people <laughs> sort of are tired of the Dodgers losing the World Series, but that doesn't mean that they're tired of the Dodgers. So I think almost the, the situation is more advantageous for the White Sox than for the Angels, if that makes any sense. No, I get you. And that's a yeah, good point about the yeah, being an hour and a half away. Sometimes <laughs> Wrigley's an hour and a half away from uh, – uh, 35th and Shields just because of traffic, but, you know, it's eight miles apart. So, yeah, they, they do overlap quite a bit, and they can put more of a dent in it than in the L.A. situation. But I just meant, to, yeah, the, the input's helpful in terms of just whether you just become accustomed to it. You know, say if the Sox don't improve uh, meaningfully and the Cubs are still, you know, 90, 90 95 win team, uh, I don't think you'll feel it, but... Uh, should the Sox be able to put a charge in the standings and everything, uh, then it becomes a lot more simpler to explain. Just, oh, we're on Comcast. We're on uh, NBC Sports Chicago. You'll be able to find us. Here are the people you know. We have other programming besides Best of the Cubs convention. Uh, and, and just becomes less of, uh, yeah, it becomes, I guess, more or it's a known brand, I should say. It's not like they're more legit. They're just already legit because it's a known brand with its own programming and history and everything like that, whereas the Cubs are still trying to fill it out. And I think if the Cubs go to a new station and they have to fill out how many other hours of programming with a team that's not that exciting, and uh, it, it's just going to be 
uh, a case of where people will be tweaking them for timing a little bit. Well, great question, Nicholas. Thank you very much. That's it for P.O. Socks. Thank you to everyone who submitted questions. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Socks Machine podcast. As I mentioned, you can support Socks Machine at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. Get extra podcast content, get extra blog content, get some special offers. Josh put together a fantasy league for Patreon supporters this year. So please definitely do that. Also, follow Socks Socks Machine on Twitter at Socks Machine. Follow me on Twitter at Greg Nick's Human. Follow Josh on Twitter at Socks Machine underscore Josh. Thank you all for listening. This has been the Socks Machine podcast, and we will be back next week, or I should say, Josh will be back next week for another episode. So, Jim, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's always fun. Thanks for stepping in. Appreciate it. Uh... And I mean, we'll be hearing from you again. Yes, absolutely. Maybe in a preview, maybe in wake-up calls, maybe in future Josh vacations because he's traveling a lot. Who can say? <laughs> Who can say? But what we do know is that the season, the actual baseball season, starts in less than a month. So get excited, people, and stay tuned to Sox Machine for all your White Sox-related updates. So for Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson, I am Greg Nix saying thank you so much for listening and so long. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible x gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Metrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.